High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a painful conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. We're going to talk about pain. Pain was declared the fifth vital sign after temperature, heart rate, blood pressure, and respirations in 1996 by the American Pain Society. I was a young doctor at the time, and the fact that pain took fifth place as a vital sign pissed me off. I wasn't upset because pain is subjective. Some of my patients had a pain scale of two in the midst of a major heart attack, and others had a pain scale of 20 off the charts from the 1 to 10 scale while eating chips and texting on the phone. I also wasn't angry that the pain scale was the invention of the pain doctors funded by Purdue Pharma to promote OxyContin. I had no idea that connection at the time. I was angry because pain took fifth place over oxygen. Around the same time, the oxygen saturation machine became readily available at hospitals. I thought oxygen or breathing should be the fifth vital sign, not pain. I wouldn't mind if pain was a sixth vital sign, but how did it cut in front of the line of oxygen? I became a quality reviewer for Medicare and noticed that physicians and hospitals were getting dinged for not addressing pain. A quality complaint from the government would state that a patient entered the hospital with a pain scale of seven and discharged with a pain scale of five. Why was more not done to treat the pain, doctor, hospital? I defended the doctors in these cases. If you want to guarantee a pain scale of zero, you need to be dead or on a ventilator. Don't worry. I didn't actually write such an official response, but I thought about it. In San Diego, I brought the community together to write safe prescribing guidelines for pain and a one San Diego plan to coordinate medical care regardless of the role in the healthcare family. Our San Diego guidelines were used three years before the CDC stepped in and published their gold standard guidelines. The pain scale is not completely dead. I still like asking heart attack patients if their pain scale improved after giving nitroglycerin. I like asking back pain patients if their pain scale changed after a trigger point injection. But the goal is not zero pain. I don't want my patients dead or on a ventilator. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Lev. This is Justin. I'm an emergency medicine pharmacist. Uh, I've worked with you over the years, and uh, I've really enjoyed working together with you. We've worked on projects, on initiatives, on research together, and just wanted to say that I'm really grateful for our professional relationship together. Um, For those of you who don't know, 
Uh, we as emergency medicine pharmacists work closely alongside our physicians and our providers uh, to assist with medication selection, uh, medication decisions. Um, we help determine what would be the most safe as well as effective for our many patients who walk through the doors of the emergency department. And so today I have a question for your High Truths podcast. I know recently the CDC released updated pain management guidelines. Uh, for us as providers and pharmacists in the emergency department, what do you think are the key things and the key takeaways that we need to know that would impact our patient care? Uh, secondly, uh, do you know if the CDC is going to regularly update these guidelines similar to other guidelines that they put out, such as um, the guidelines that they put out for sexually transmitted infections? Thank you, Justin, for your question. Emergency department pharmacists are the guardian angels to doctors in the emergency department. You make the doctor smarter in deciding antibiotic choices, COVID treatment, reversing blood thinner medication reaction in people who are bleeding, real-time support during code blue cases, and so, so much more. Every busy emergency department should have highly trained emergency pharmacists, and I'm so thankful that you make our emergency department care so much better. To answer your question about CDC pain guidelines, I went straight to the source the doctor who actually wrote the guidelines. And today I'm excited to talk to Dr. Roger Chow. Dr. Chow is professor of medicine and medical informatics and clinical epidemiology at Oregon Health and Sciences University. He's an international expert on opioids and pain. He works with the World Health Organization, the National Academy of Medicine, and the CDC. Dr. Chow is one of the main authors for the CDC Clinical Practice Guidelines for Prescribing Opioids for Pain, initially published in 2016 and again in 2022. To learn more about Dr. Roger Chow, please check out the High Truths show notes. Dr. Roger Chow, welcome to High Truths. Thanks for having me. I'm very, very excited to, to have you um, and talk about pain and the CDC guidelines. Um, and your specialty is in pain. Um, but you're trained in internal medicine because, I don't know, when I started, there was no such thing as a pain specialty. How did you come to, to that profession? Yeah, so my clinical background is actually uh, general internal medicine. Um, and I, I've done primary care for, you know, 25 plus years. Um, I started, you know, I, I did a health services research fellowship at the VA and um, I started doing um, systematic reviews, technical reviews for um, the Evidence-Based Practice Center, which was here at OHSU. Um, and as part of that, I started working with the American Pain Society on their clinical guidelines program. Um, and, you know, this was way back in 2004 or 2005 um, when we were just starting to realize there was an issue with opioids. Um, and um, they wanted to do a guideline on opioids, and I, I was serving as I we, we had a contract with them for me to serve as the director of clinical guidelines development, and um, we actually did the first national guideline on opioids for chronic pain that was in 2007. Um, so you know, preceding the CDC guideline by nine years or so. Is that pain society? Um, yeah, there were there were several pain societies. Some of them were funded by pharma and some weren't. I can't remember which is which. Is Which is the one that wrote the guidelines? 
So, so the American Pain Society did receive pharma, you know, did receive pharma funding, but it wasn't part of the guideline process. There were some firewalls in place. Um, the American Academy of Pain Medicine was actually also part of that guideline, um, and you know, the American Pain Society shut down, so they're not in existence anymore. Um, yeah, but at least, at least my experience was, and, and the way it was set up was, there was no, you know. Pharma had no involvement in the guidelines. Are, are those the guidelines? And I can't remember that I reviewed at the time. Were like, if this person has in pain, then add some more, and then add some more, and add some more opiates. No, I don't think so. I mean, th these guidelines, uh, I would say, are actually pretty similar to the 2016 CDC guideline. Um, you know, we were the first guideline to actually, the first national guideline, at least, uh, to say. Um, you know, wait a minute, maybe you shouldn't just keep titrating up. Uh, you know, we, we at the time, we proposed a dose threshold of 200 um, milligram morphine equivalents. Uh, but before that, there was no dose threshold. Um, if you remember those days when it was, the idea was, you know, there, you know, you can just continue to increase the dose as long as you, you know, do it slowly, there's no problem. Um, when we looked at the evidence at that time, we were, um, you know, there was no studies supporting those practices, right? If you look at the randomized trials of opioids, you know, they were all using doses, you know, maybe up to 80 millimorphine equivalents at most, occasionally up to something like 100 or 120, um, you know, morphine equivalents, but, you know, you know, never over 200. And, um, it was really unclear, you know, what the what the data were, and that was when we were starting to see a lot of overdose risk. We didn't have any of the studies yet about the association between dose and overdose, like the the dose dependent risk, um, and so it was difficult to make a recommendation. But but we did, and the recommendation was, you know, don't go over 200 uh, milligrams, except in you know very limited circumstances. And um, there was a lot of anger at that time. Um, I remember being at national meetings and people yelling at us and saying, you know, why are you trying to restrict, you know, the way we prescribe? Oh, you were being yelled at for uh, for being too restrictive. That's in 2007 oh, or 2016? Uh, yeah, yeah no, bo well, both. But two, this is 2000. This is actually 2009. I'm sorry. I had the date mixed up. This is 2009. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we were there were people. Um, quite upset. And, you know, the, the other group that had done that or was doing that was Washington State. So Washington State, yep. you know, around the same time that our guideline came out, the, the Washington State Agency Directors Group um, uh, put out a dose threshold of 120 milligrams. Um, you know, that, that group is led by Gary Franklin. Um, and, you know, they got a lot of flack for that as well. Um, but again, they were seeing the same kinds of data, you know, lots of overdoses, you know, unclear, you know, safety of using really high doses, um, and, and and really not not good evidence to, to support. The, I mean, we, we just didn't have studies, you know, showing what the benefits and harms were at very high doses. So, yeah, I mean, that that was 2009. That, and, and again, I think I think that that was kind of the long path to the 2016, you know, CDC guideline. Is you know, the the societies issued that. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the principles and that, you know, if you go back, I haven't read that guideline in a while, um, but if you go back and read it, um, I, I think a lot of the principles are still principles that we, um, 
support now. And I mean, I'll, I'll just say that at the time, you know, I, I was trained in the, you know, 1990s when opioid use was exploding, right? That's when we saw a fourfold increase in prescribing of opioids for chronic pain over about a 10 year period, 1990 to 2000. That's when OxyContin, you know, became was, one of the it most. It was shoved down our drugs. throats. It was like, you need to prescribe, right? You need, you can't be. Well, I mean, Exactly. I mean, we, we were we were told that um, OxyContin. I, I mean, you know, there was there was a confluence of factors that happened, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of people with chronic pain. Uh, there was a perception that we were withholding opioids, which were perceived as being very effective, um, you know, because of safety concerns. Um, and then there was a, there were, there were all, there were a lot of ideas about well you can prescribe it safely in palliative care settings and cancer settings, you know why can't we use it for people with chronic pain, um, you know some case theories some opinion leaders etc. And then at the same time there were these you know drugs that were being these long acting drugs that were being very aggressively marketed and. Um, you know, so this all happened over a 10 year period where the prescribing practices in this country changed very dramatically. It was, it was like a huge national experiment um, and really based on, you know, very little data. Right. And it's amazing how national guidelines, since you're a guidelines expert, changed within those 10 years, right? The first guidelines like, were like, no one gets addicted if they have really pain, have true pain. And then uh, fast forward 10 years, which is a very short period of time, really, um, saying no, 100% of people get addicted if if they if they continue um, with opioids. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't say 100% of people get addicted, but I think that the, the the risks were under were not recognized, and you know, th there was a lot of overlap between industry and the people that were making the guidelines originally. Um, you know, some of the folks had, you know, hopped from the federal government to private industry, and they were still prominent in the field. We didn't have the same kinds of, you know, a lot of the opinion leaders were, you know, also people that were speakers for pharma. And we didn't have the same kinds of, um, I guess, conflict safeguards that we, yeah, for conflicts of interest, I think, that we have now. And, you know, I, I... I mean, my opinion is that many of these people did think they were helping patients. They they did think people were, you know, you know, being undertreated, and they thought opioids were safe. And um, I, I don't think that was based on good science, but they were, you know, I, I, I think I they did believe you. it. Yeah. People have good; yeah. in, they had good intentions, but they didn't see the catastrophe that was. Being. Oh yeah happening right i mean well i mean, I mean yeah I, exactly i mean the the and, and the marketing was very powerful and um you know everyone knows the story of purdue pharma and the sacklers now but you know this this was this we knew about this back in 2007 i mean i you know people kind of forget this but there was a federal case against purdue pharma in 2007 uh, they pled guilty. Two pharma executives went to jail. They pled guilty to a felony for lying that OxyContin was, you know, less addictive than other opioids and safer. Um, and people kind of, I kind of somehow got brushed under the table. And 
Um, but yeah, we, I mean, th- this was, this was starting to come out, you know, you know, right. I think long before people really realized. And you and I lived through this, this history, we, right? We saw it happening. I see the emergency department where I work is like the canary in the coal mine. All of a sudden our patient population changed and you know, California and other states passed uh, pain bill of rights, all sorts of laws that are still on the books where you have the right to mm-hmm. pain and uh, doctors won't be prosecuted for not giving pain, but doctors did get sued for not giving pain medicines. And that just sent out a message to the medical community to prescribe. And patients would come in and they have like a little boo-boo on their finger and they're like, doc, what are you going to give me for my pain? And it's like, or whatever, here's some 20 oxycodone, have fun. Right. I mean, we were we were kind of bullied into that position. Um, I mean, it, it was a major change in practice. I mean, I, I think when, you know, if, if you look back to the 70s and 80s, it, it was not standard medical practice at that time to use opioids for non-cancer pain or acute pain, right? That That's what we use opioids for. If, if, if somebody had like low back pain or something, that was not something that, uh, chronic low back pain, that was not something that opioids were used for. That that was kind of considered not typical practice. And that, and you also that had changed very quickly. Perf- yeah. Yeah, we had yeah, there was a lot more patients, right? You weren't, if we did give pain yeah. medicines, we'd give a Vicodin or a codeine. We wouldn't go straight to oxygen. Right. Yeah, I mean, and there, so there were a lot of changes. And you're right, you know, the, the, it, it, you know, like in the, in the 70s, 80s, people that, you know, prescribed opioids for things like chronic low back pain, you know, were often worried that that was, you know, they were going to get, um, that, you know, that they were practicing outside the bounds. And, 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 and there were laws that were passed to, you know, give, to, to, to not just make it permissive to prescribe opioids, but to encourage or in some place or, or in some cases to kind of, you know, almost make it required that if you weren't doing it, then you were. And, and you know, this is what I was taught as a resident. I mean, when I did that first guideline, it was, it was, um, I'll just say it was very eye-opening, you know, because, you know, when we do these systematic reviews, you know, I, I mean, I was trained as a primary care doc. You know, I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a boarded in pain medicine or anything like that. I, I'm a primary care doc. And when we do these systematic reviews, you know, our goal is to be comprehensive, you know, look at the studies rigorously, and um, it was really kind of shocking, you know, what the evidence was. Like, if you if you looked at the, the trials and you're looking at the benefits of the opioids, they're, they're pretty small. Um, in many cases, no bigger than what you see for, you know, things like NSAIDs and, you know, stuff like that. And um, no long-term studies at all, um, you know, very selected patient populations, no data on, you know, overdose risk and things like that. Um, you know, it, it, it was, it, and, and it's not just with, you know, opioids and chronic pain. I mean, this just happens for a lot of things that we've, you know, um, you know, done reviews for. But um, I, I think this is a particularly eye-opening case because um, you saw what was happening clinically, just how um, much practice was changing over a very short period of time. It is. We, and there's so much to learn from this. If we could just learn from history and we've lived it now, how it started and how really how it ended. I think there's a lot to learn with that. So you started doing a guideline in 2009. And is that how you got invited 
um, to help with the guidelines for the CDC in 2016. I, I noticed we look at the authors of the guidelines. They're all CDC employees, uh, except for you. Yeah, so um, uh, yes, I would say that's how it, it started. I mean, I, you know, I, I did it. I, 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 I often would give talks and things on, on the guideline. Um, AHRQ actually commissioned us to do a review on opioids for chronic pain for an NIH consensus conference. Uh, so it's, it's, it was a pathways to prevention workshop. So NIH convenes those conferences to, you know, kind of uh, 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 inform like what direction we should go in and what kinds of research is needed and those kinds of things. So, so I did a presentation. This was in D.C. Um, and um, I was approached by this was I think 2014 or so, and 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 CDC essentially approached me and asked, you know, are you would you be interested in you know CDC would needs to address this. This is an important public health problem, um, and we think there needs to be some you know, you know national um, guidance. Um, and and they, they wanted to I think they wanted to you know they were worried about conflicts of interest in the in the professional society guidelines and things like that so they were like it would be it's better for the government to do it um, um, and yeah so they asked if if we'd be able to update the guideline update the evidence review and then um, uh, you know work with them on doing the guidelines so. You know, we actually had a, I actually had a professional development agreement with the CDC um, during that period. So I think technically that means I, I was, you know, they, they were paying part of my salary. So technically I was a CDC employee even though I was still at OHSU. Well, I, I met um, Dr. Um, Debbie Dowell right after the 2016 guidelines were and just thanked her profusely and thank you too for putting that out there because in the meantime, Washington State had guidelines, San Diego, we, we kind of copied um, some of the Washington State work and, and talked to them and had something locally implemented, but we were all working on our own, trying to do what we can in our community because people were dying. And when CDC put out their guidelines, that became the gold standard for the nation uh, and really elevated our work. I thought they were um, fair. Um, the only thing is they were called the chronic pain guidelines, and I found them extremely useful as an emergency physician for acute pain. Um, so I thought they were even a lot more uh, than what they s set out to be, and I, I, I think that made us all better doctors for it. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, it, it, I, you know the, I, I think that guideline did have an important impact on policy and practice. I mean, we, we did get criticisms for it. And I would say that some people, you know, used it in ways that were not intended. And if you actually read the guideline, it says, you know, that, that's not what the, you know, they, they would they would do things that the guideline specifically said don't do. Like we would say this does not apply to people, you know, who are being treated for addiction. This does not apply to people who are in palliative care, et cetera. And people would do it anyways. Um, so, so it was a very interesting case because normally that's not the case with guidelines. Normally with guidelines, like you're trying to get people to do, you know, what's in the guideline. This is a case where people were kind of going beyond. Um, but, but, but you're right. It's because there was, there, there was, you know, a, you know, at the time prescription opioids were the, you know, driver of 
of the opioid crisis and the overdose deaths. I mean, the epidemiology has changed, and I would argue that's in part because of, you know, policy and, you know, decreased use of prescription opioids um, and the availability of synthetic fentanyl. Um, but at the time, you know, prescription opioids were the driver of, you know, the opioid epidemic. And I, I think that it did have positive impacts. You know, I, I think the the goal in 2022 was to try to, you know, maybe emphasize or reiterate, you know, our goals of, you know, that the guidelines were always meant to be individualized and to, you know, it's, it's, it's a patient-focused thing. And, and, and we never said you can never use opioids. We never said you have to taper everybody who's over a certain threshold. I mean, if you read the 2016 guideline, it, it doesn't say any of those things. It says, you know, you do a risk assessment, right. risk-benefit assessment, and then you make your decision. Um, I think the 2022 guideline, one of our goals was to be even more explicit about that. Um, and to support clinicians as well as patients in those in these processes. Um, though, though, again, I would say a lot of the principles are quite similar. You know, if, if anything, the evidence since 2016 kind of has, you know, further, you know, um, supported, you know, a lot of the principles, you know, that, that the, the benefits of, of um, opioids are, are really not that big, right? I mean, we, we've looked at this many, several different times. You know, there, there's, I think, around 60 randomized controlled trials of opioids versus placebo. And, you know, the perception is that, oh, they must be, you know, highly effective. But if you look at the actual benefit, it's less than one point on a 10-point pain scale. Yeah. And and that's even when when the, the, the you know, the, the you know, th these are like the the companies are, 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 you know, they design these trials intentionally to try to get the best results, right? So they, they, they pick patients who they think are going to do better. They exclude people who have a lot of depression or have a lot of other, who may have substance use problems or other things that might, you know, make their, make, make it more difficult to treat them. They don't look at conditions that are harder to treat, things like fibromyalgia and stuff like that. Um, and they do things with their study designs. I mean, uh, you know, are, if you're familiar with something that's called the enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal design, um, this is something sounds that's become very common. It sounds complicated, and it's and it's and when you hear what it is, you'll think it's very odd uh, because you know, in a, in a normal uh, trial where you're looking at a medication, right? You'll take, you know. You'll take a, a group of people and you'll randomize them to receive the drug or placebo, and then you see how they do. Um, and you know, with opioids, you know, industry and other people were, you know, the, the the their concern was, well, how come we can't show that opioids work? We know they work. How come we can't show that they work? Uh, so they came up with this other design, which is this EERW or enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal design, which is you put everybody on the opioid. Um, anybody who, you know, has, you know, intolerable side effects, you remove from the study. People that don't benefit from the opioid, you remove from the study. So you end up with people who have had a good response to opioids and don't have bad side effects. And then you randomize them. And what you're randomizing them to is, you know, could they either get to continue the opioid that they've been doing well with or you take them off? Um, so it's in, it's a very intentionally selected population to try to get you know it, that's why it's called enriched because it's people who we we they already know have done well with opioids, 
and then they either allow them to continue or they or they take them off. And it's it's a very you know strange design, um, but it's become one of the most common methods of looking at opioids. Um, and even in those studies, the benefits are about you know a little bit less than a, one point. So, so even when you take like the you know people only when you when you're only examining people who you already know have done well in opioids, um, and then you either let them continue or stop it, the benefits are still pretty small. And so, you know that that's I think quite um, consistent. And as I say, the the there, there's been nothing in the last six years to have changed that. And you know we are there. There's um, you know, there are, I think one of the, you know, there have been some challenges. I think the papering issue is a big challenge on how to do it and, 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 and who to do it. And, and we still don't have a lot of data there, but that's another area that we try to address um, with a little more depth. And then, you know, the acute pain part is another thing that, that is addressed more in this, in this current guideline. So that kind of like sums up Justin's uh, question uh, to our podcast and to you. Justin is an um, emergency department pharmacist. He makes um, me and all of our doctors a lot smarter um, with the you know more increasing complexity of medications in the emergency department. Um, and so he his question to them going to adjust to you is what are the essentials in the new CDC opioid guidelines for um, pain? And his second part of the question is, will there be a third guideline or a regular addition to this, kind of like the CDC puts out for sexually transmitted infections? Is this going to be an ongoing thing? Yeah. Yeah, those are both great questions. And, you know, I, I, you know, so from the, from the ER standpoint, uh, I'll think, I'll say that the, the key additions or new aspects, um, Include, you know, so, so we, in the 2016 guideline, we did a very limited, you know, supplemental review on acute pain. It, it wasn't any, and we did a much more in-depth review, again, commissioned by AHRQ for the 2022 guideline. And some of the findings were surprising. So remember I said before that for chronic pain, we found that, you know, opioids aren't all that effective. Um, but we're also starting to look at, if you look at that for acute pain, you actually see some of the same things. So for dental pain, it's, it's actually quite clear that NSAIDs are at least as effective as opioids for most dental pain, uh, you know, wisdom, wisdom tooth extractions and whatnot. So I uh, never, I never give an opioid for pain because I'll give, I'll get the pain score to a zero with a dental block with a, with a long acting yeah. anesthetic. And now you're going to be pain-free, zero pain, um, with a quick dental block instead of giving a prescription for opioids that's, you know, I don't, or even a shot of dilated that's not going to help as much. Yeah, like I said, there's, I mean, even NSAIDs, like I said, are are at least as effective as opioids. And, you know, one of the things we looked at was kidney stone pain, which, you know, when I was, a, when I was training, I was always taught that this is one of the worst you know, most intense pains you could have. People say it's similar to childbirth or something. And, um, you know, opioids are kind of standard practice. But, you know, a few, there's a few randomized controlled trials that show that acetaminophen and NSAIDs are about as effective as opioids for uh, kidney stone pain. So, that, you know, pretty surprising um, for some post-operative pain, you know, NSAIDs look. So, 
you know, I, I think that's one of the, the, the newer um, messages. You know, again, it's not that you can't use opioids for, you know, if somebody has had major surgery or major trauma or something, obviously, you know, opioids are appropriate. But there are a lot of types of acute pain where it's not necessary to use um, uh, opioids. People actually may do better with other drugs, and certainly some of those other drugs may be safer. Um, and um, I think the other thing that we've learned, you know, over the last five, ten years is just how much, um, uh, you know, you know, uh, there, there's so many, uh, uh, when people are prescribed medications for acute pain, whether it's after surgery or for, you know, a dental procedure or something like that, there's tons of unused opioids, you know. So, so there are some studies that show, like, on average, you know, people are given, like, a prescription of 30 or 50 pills and they use, like, you know, eight, that kind of thing. And, and of course, that's very highly risky because a lot of these opioids sit around in somebody's cabinet. It's, it's actually not easy to get rid of opioids, right? You're not really supposed to just toss them in the trash and, you know, um, the pharmacies aren't allowed to take them back unless they have, you know, special, you know, you know boxes and things to set up to dispose of them. Um, and, and so you have a lot of unused opioids and, you know, people can get access to those. And so I think the other message is, you know, you know, kind of, you know, not over, you know, not giving big, um, uh, you know, uh, amounts or, or, you know, tailoring that to, 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 to the anticipated duration of pain. Right. The surgeons would um, give like a, 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 a bottle of 300 pills. And like you said, the patient would need eight and you'd, ha and so the paradigm shift is now give the small amount and then give refills instead of giving amount like a bigger amount. Exactly. I mean, if people, you know, I mean, we want people to have follow-up and be able to, you know, so if somebody is having more pain, that's actually something that we, the primary care doc or whoever's following the patient should know. And so, you know, if somebody has, so again, trying to, you know, and, 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 you know, this is trying to use data, right? It's not, it's actually, you know, studies that show that there's tons of unused opioids. And so we try to incorporate those considerations. You know, uh, we tried to look at other non-pharmacological therapies for acute pain. And there, there are some data on, on some things like pens and, you know, massage and things like that. So, so there are some other options that can be used. Um, I think the, um, you know, from the pharmacist perspective, one of the important things are drug-drug interactions. And, um, you know, and, and this is something that's, uh, I think, emerged in the last, you know, you know, we were, it, it, some of the data was just coming out in around 2016, but, you know, on the risk with opioids and benzodiazepines, mm -hmm. where we see, you know, sometimes a doubling or tripling of risk of overdose when you combine those drugs. Uh, but there's also been there's also data on um, opioids plus things like GABA, you know, other drugs that cause some CNS depression, so gabapentin and pregabalin, um, and things like that. And I think uh, not all clinicians were aware of that. Uh, we now have tools to you know look for those types of interactions in the PDMP. Um, you know, many states now have laws about requiring people to access the PDMP. Um, and actually, many states have laws about the amount of opioid you can, you know, whether, you know, how many days of opioid you can prescribe for, you know, somebody um, in the ED, for example. Um, so, so a lot of, a lot of things like that, um, for, for, again, from the, from the ED perspective.
Interesting. So, oh, and then in terms of updating, um, yeah. I don't. I don't think that they've made a decision yet. I mean, this is a, a long process. If you if you read the guideline, you know, there's a long process from you know commissioning the reviews and and doing the reviews, and then you know starting to do the guideline. There's a lot of um, input from the public. Um, several years. Right? Other it federal took several agencies. Years to... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very long process, and so. Um, right now, I'm not aware of uh, a, a specific plan. I, I do think CDC in, wants to keep it updated, and if there's, especially if there's new data or you know things that emerge, um, they would want to address that. But I, I'm not aware of a specific timeline at this point. Interesting. Um, a little bit about the guidelines. By the way, if you, if there was a third version like coming up, I, I would also I would change it to you know the first one was called chronic pain. The next one was, you know, opioids for pain. And I, my conversation to the medical community now is, is just about safe prescribing, not just opiates, right? You have to talk about benzodiazepines and other drugs out there and, and, and all the different drug interactions for various different things. And uh, if we look at medical examiner, and this is what guides me, if I look at medical examiner data of why people are dying of medications there we know the illicit drug is is you know fentanyl number one methamphetamine number two um from illicit drugs but that doesn't come from the medical supply if, if we look at the medical supply of deaths that's what really directs me as what i could do to prevent people from dying from the medicines that i prescribe and that's a combination it's not just one drug right yeah you know i i i i i I think I would agree with that. I mean, it is about prescribing opioids in general, and um, and I'll also say there's so much, um, you know, the you know how we use opioids for pain, and you know the issues with opioid addiction are very closely interrelated. I mean, there, there's a really interesting study that that you know looked at. Um, you know what they did was they they talked to a, or they surveyed um, heroin users and they asked them what their first opioid of abuse was, um, and it was based on when they started using heroin. And you know when you talk to people in the 60s, 70s, it's overwhelmingly heroin was their first opioid of abuse, right? And then that switches, it reverses in around 1990, where Wait, now but, if you talk to heroin you users, same patients yeah. with the heroin yeah. that you went back with the heroin and opiates, if you kept asking well what's the first drug you ever used ever they'll say marijuana right well now they'll say if it's the first opioid of abuse they'll right. say because he asked opioid. the wrong question yeah. he just said what yeah. was the first drug yeah. instead of the first opioid interesting yeah i mean you know marijuana is uh, you know it's so ubiquitous i mean i live in oregon where it's yeah. um you know you can you can you can literally get it delivered to you on a bicycle um if you wanted to, so it's 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 ubiquitous, um, and um, I, I mean I think that creates other, you know, and that brings up a whole host of other. We're gonna issues. we're gonna talk to let's so. we're gonna talk about marijuana a little bit, but I want um, the guidelines. Was there anything outdated when you read? Was there anything okay? This is wrong when we looked at it again that you needed to re remove, or did you only like add and hone in some things? I think it was mostly, um, you know, clarifying things. You know, we we did take out some of the, la you know, language of, you know, where we specified like, 
you know, you know, so in the 2016 guideline, we said, you know, use caution when you get to 50 morphine equivalents mm-hmm. and then avoid, you know, higher than 90 or, you know, if you're going to use higher than 90, you know, that has to be based on a careful assessment. And, um, you know, things like that were taken out. We also said for acute pain, you know, usually you need less than seven days. Um, and it was felt that those parameters were maybe too prescriptive. And so if you read the top line recommendations, at least they're not those, those kinds of things aren't in there. It's more about, you know, um, individualizing to the patient. Um, the, the, another thing in the, in the 2016 guideline is there's, so it's not in the top line recommendation, but in the text, um, when talking about tapering, there's some language that says, you know, you can taper people like by 10, like a, a rule of thumb was to taper people by 10% a week. And, um, you know, anyone in clinical practice knows that in, you know, somebody who's been on opioids for many years, um, that can be extremely fast. That, that means going from, you know, 100, you know, on, on your current dose to zero in 10 weeks. And for many people, that's, that's way too, that's very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we do talk about using longer tapers, um, I think we're we're also gaining more experience about how and when to taper, um, the need to provide you know adequate psychological and other supports for people undergoing tapers. Um, you know, um, I don't think this is in the guideline, but you know, I, I've also written with some other folks. You know, we 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 do have this phenomenon where there are people who, um, you know, have chronic pain are prescribed opioids. Um, they don't meet any other DSM-5 criteria for opioid use disorder, except you can't taper them, right? Every time you try to drop their dose, they have intolerable side effects. Their pain gets really bad. You know, there's this, uh, you know, they're in a, a ton of distress. Um, and so they kind of fall in between, you know, a, um, you know, DSM-5 diagnosis of opioid use disorder and, you know, whatever what what you know the, the condition that they're having and you know in, in my opinion those patients are um are, are, are a tough challenge um and and in my opinion you know and the, the reason you're tapering those people a lot of times is because they're at high risk right they've exhibited that they you know that that they you know are, are having you know yeah, they they they're 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 they they've had they have it. They maybe had an overdose event. Maybe they've, um, uh, you know, had multiple. You know, they've lost their prescriptions a few times, something like that. You know, whatever. But the, the, but there's some risk that you're worried about. Um, and um, you know, some of those patients might do better on something like buprenorphine, but but they don't. Again, they don't meet the classical criteria for opioid use disorder. Or, or if they do, it's kind of a you know. Um, you know, uh, a um, uh, you know, kind of on the borderline. So, so, so we're learning about things like that. I mean, th- there are some data about people having bad outcomes if they're suddenly taken off their opioid, um, which I don't think is a surprise. We always knew that you should not stop opioids suddenly, um, but we, you know, emphasize that in the. Um, report. Um, there's a lot of concerns about, you know, people having bad outcomes from tapering. Um, and, you know, we, 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 we discussed that in the, in the guideline. Um, I, I'll just say that I, I think those studies are very hard to interpret. Um, most of those studies are based on, 
you know, analyses of databases. So they're looking at large databases. And typically, you don't have any idea why the opioid was stopped or why it's being dropped. You don't have any idea about what other things are being done to support the patients. Um, you know, you just have no idea what the clinical context is. And um, probably a lot of those people who are being dropped on their opioid dose are being dropped because they're high risk, right? So there's a lot of confounding there. So, so I think those studies are very hard to interpret. I, I, you know, I wish we had better studies on, you know, how to taper and, um, well, the medical you know, board of California but, was but going a, after yeah. doctors for prescribing. They went, they made a 180. They were, you know, 10 years before going after doctors who weren't prescribing. And then they sent 500 letters to physicians who had someone who died years before, years before the C, you know, uh, CDC right. were even published with the threat of losing their license. So that sent a huge alarm in California to physicians in fear. And, and I, I, I think the medical board has blood on their hands because physicians were scared, cut patients off for fear of their license. And, and I've, I've talked to loved ones whose family members committed suicide because they were just cut off and didn't, you know, and that's yeah. not, not the intention. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's terrible, and 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 you're right. That was not the intention. And you know, we we actually wrote an editorial in New England Journal of Medicine, I think, in like 2019 or so, saying, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, that's not what the guideline says to do. You don't stop people suddenly. You know, you you need to, if you're going to stop, you need to taper them in appropriate ways. If somebody has opioid use disorder, you need to treat them for their opioid use disorder. I mean. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I still think that's a huge problem under treatment of opioid use disorder, and, um, and, um, uh, and, and just kind of related to what you were saying before, it, it, you know, it, it kind of goes beyond just, you know, you, you know, how do you use opioids for pain? It's kind of how do you use opioids in general? Um, you know, I, I don't think that, I mean, the CDC, you know, the, the guideline is not meant to address, you know, treatment of addiction. That's a whole other area. But I think this overlap between addiction and pain is, is really important. I mean, the guideline does touch on it. Um, um, but I, I, again, I, I feel like that that's still a big, um, you know, need um, right. to make sure people have access to appropriate treatments. Um, you know, the, the, the old way of doing this was if somebody was having a, a problem with their opioids, say they were escalating their doses, they were, you know, doctor shopping and getting opioids for multiple docs, the, the response was, we're going to cut them off and discharge them from our clinic, right? And right. that's probably somebody who has opioid use disorder, somebody who's, you know, unable, to, you know, engaging in those types of behaviors. And the standard of care is to treat them with a medication you know, um, and um, I, I still think I, I think we're better now than we were maybe 10 or 15 years ago. But there's still a lot of, you know, there, there's still a long way to go there. Right. Definitely could do things safer. I, I, I help with a course called Innovations in Safe Prescribing um, that uh, was commissioned by San Diego Public Health. And I used a lot of the CDC old, you know, um, uh, kind of, uh, you have not just the guidelines, but there was a lot of um, assist devices like start slow and go slow. Uh, start low, go slow. Is that still in effect? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely. So, so you know, the initial period of when you start first start opioids is the mm-hmm. most is a high risk period for overdose. If you look at overdose risk, it's you know something like two or three fold, two two or three times higher in the first few weeks because people don't have tolerance yet. And so, um, so yes, you know, we we want people to start low. That used to be a big problem with methadone. I mean, if you remember when we were using methadone a lot, um, yeah, people were dying methadone. Pain, uh, because it was cheap, right? It was, you know, methadone was a few pennies compared to oxycontin, which was like, you know, maybe a dollar or something, a milligram. Um, so, so a lot of, you know, uh, formularies, methadone was a preferred drug, but methadone is very tricky to use because of, you know, long, long half-life. half-life and variable half-life and all this stuff. And, you know, people were overdosing because people were starting on doses that were too high and then increasing them too soon. Um, so, so with methadone in, in particular, but with all opioids, you know, you know, people who are not tolerant, you know, um, in general, you know, you want to start low and titrate, you know, you know, you know, slowly, and you know that that um, you know the, the risks of you know using high, you know, doses that are too high are, you know, I mean, the risk is overdose, and so, you know, the, the study I did. That. With the medical examiner looking at all the medication deaths, um, I said uh, you know, usually 80% of the time people die of a cocktail, not just one drug. But if there was one drug that was just, you know a straight kill with no other drugs, it would it was methadone. Um, the other thing that CDC guidelines said, don't start without a – I want to ask you several things uh, to make sure selfishly if it's still applicable to our program. So uh, don't start yeah. without a plan to stop. Is that still – is that still – uh, part of the guidelines. Yeah, I think I think that's an important principle, um, you know, and and I think that was, um, you know, I, and, and and a lot of that is based on experience. That if you, um, you know, that it, that it was a lot easier to start opioids than to stop them, and that that was a big problem, right? We had so many people started on opioids. I mean, we we are using more opioids in the United States than any other country in the world. Right. right, and 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 it was very hard, and, and we know that it's hard, much harder to to stop opioids than than to start them. And so, you know, the principle is that when you're starting opioids, you you want to have, you know, what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? Uh, what are the things that would make you think that you know you need to stop that the benefits are not outweighed by the harms? And how are you going to do it? Like, how are you going, you know, and, and patients should know about this going in, that it's uh, it's not that you're going to be put on this drug and just yes, just kept on it forever, that they're, they're going to be reevaluated, you know, just like any other drug. If we put somebody on a cholesterol-lowering medication or something, you know, you, you monitor them and you see what their response is. And if they're having side effects, you make adjustments or you try a different medication. I, I think it's the same with opioids. And so, so we think that's an important principle and I, I think it still holds. Um, and, you know, especially the, you know, the, the, the goals of, of treatment. I mean, in the past, we really, we really focused on, you know, pain, um, which is important, of course, but we also want to know, you know, what, what is maybe as important or maybe more important is what people can do, right? So it, it, it was very common in clinical practice for people to come in, you know, visit after visit and say, yeah, my pain's better on the opioids. It's a six now instead of an eight. But then you'd ask, well, you know, can you, are you working? Are you, you know, attending your, you know, 
kids, you know, ball games? Are you participating in other social activities? Um, and the answer was often, no, I'm not doing any of those things because of pain. And so, you know, having more of a focus on function as an important goal and then, you know, really, you know, I, I try to talk to patients about this and try to understand, you know, what is it that they're, um, you know, what that we're hoping to achieve. And then if we're not achieving that, you know, then you need to make some decisions about, you know, is it, does it really make sense to continue a, a medication that has risks um, but is not accomplishing, you know, what you're hoping. Right. The other thing I saw on the, the guidelines is the four A's and I added my fifth A. So the four A's were mm -hmm. analgesia, activities of daily living, like you mentioned, adverse effects and aberrant behavior. And then I added another A for additive. And that has to do with the benzodiazepines, the Benadryls, um, mm -hmm. uh, again, the gabapentin, the cannabis, because those drugs are additive in their effects and making sure that they're not there. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that is, that's important and that, that's a good addition. Um, you know, and, and the idea really is for, again, for people not to focus just on, you know, pain relief, which is analgesia, but to think about you know, what the impacts are on the patient as a whole um, and, you know, making your judgments based on all of those things. And if somebody, you know, needs high-dose benzodiazepines, you know, that's a high-risk situation. And, you know, I mean, personally, I think as a physician, you'd be at, you know, some, you know, risk if you prescribe that, you know, if you prescribe that combination and somebody had a bad outcome. And, um, and of course, we don't want patients to have, you know, those kinds of outcomes. And so um, I, I think the the additive, you know, meds or however you phrase that is important and a good addition. Yeah. Thanks. So I have something that, you know, as a scientist and someone who reviews articles for the government will be very, very helpful for you for your next guideline. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. called Goldilocks prescribing. Not too much, not too little. It has to be just right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the goal. And that, that, you know, that's what we've, that's what the, you know, that's what we always intended. So, you know, again, if you read the 2016 guideline, that's kind of what we were saying is, you know, it's not don't ever use these, but use them when it's appropriate, stop them when they're not working or when they're harming patients, you know, and, um, you know, I think the 2022 guideline perhaps is clearer about that or, you know, there's a lot of text that, you know, there's box, you know, we have like separate boxes and stuff that really kind of talk about this and 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 specifically say, you know, don't do these things. Um, but yeah, it's about, you know, managing patients, you know, individual patients and um, yeah, so, so I think that that's right. It's, it's, it's getting it just right. You have to get it just right. And and that's something that we're really, we are taught in medical school and we do understand as providers. And that's probably why the CDC calls this a guideline and not a protocol. So when we wrote our guidelines in San Diego, we made sure they're called guidelines, not a protocol, because every human being is different. Every situation is different. And we do that as physicians. But sometimes when the general public reads things, um, they, they take it very literally and that causes... Um, you know, controversy. And so I bet you, you experienced a lot of that politics when you wrote these guidelines. Were there people angry at, at uh, again, and uh, when they, about these guidelines, or was it calmer than the first time? Um, 
I, I don't know that it's calmer. I mean, I've, um, you know, the, the guideline got, I think, 5,500 public comments or something like that, which, wow. you know, we, we do a lot, we do a lot of federal, you know, I, I do a lot of work for the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and other groups. And, um, you know, for, for a lot of those reports, public comment is, you know, I don't know, five to 20 people, maybe. So 5,500 is, you know, that's, you know, a couple of orders of magnitude higher. And, um, and and it was similar with the 2016 guidelines. How do you manage that? There's a lot of, I don't know if you get such comments when it comes to, you know, sexually transmitted infections and, and antibiotic choices. But with this, you've got like every medical organization, you know, people, parent groups, pain groups, uh, every side, like making their comment, putting in their point of view. How do you, how do you manage that as a scientist who's writing a guideline? I mean, it, it's a challenge, you know. I, I think the um, I, I, I think there's a, there's a few things we do. I mean, one is you know we have we we think the guideline needs to be you know grounded in the scientific evidence, and so you know we do the best job we can to understand what the science is telling us, you know, what the benefits and harms are, you know, uh, and you know using that as the basis, right? So that's the first thing. Um, I think, um, you know, we also, um, and we do try to take into account, um, you know, feedback and, and patient and public comments. So, you know, we, you know, we, the, the CDC actually spent quite a bit of time. I think they actually did individual interviews with, you know, a random sample of, you know, people um, to get more, even more in-depth feedback. Um, and we include, you know, uh, the CDC included patient, you know, stakeholder perspectives in the guideline development process itself. So on, in the working group, there are, you know, folks who represent, you know, the, the patient perspective. Um, and, and so I, I think there's there's a lot of things that we do. And, and then I'll say the third thing is just the process. So, you know, we, we try to stick with, you know, we, we try to use a process that is transparent you know, that shows all the steps and kind of all the stuff that goes into the guidelines. So, you know, people may disagree, but at least they can see what the, you know, what it's based on. Um, you know, I, I think scientifically the, um, you, you know, I, I mean, I, I feel confident in our interpretation of the evidence from a scientific basis. And like I said, so, you know, people may disagree about certain aspects of the you know, guideline or how things are phrased. And, and th those are the kinds of things that you need to be thoughtful about. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think in the, in the, in the end, you know, you, um, you do need to consider, you know, the, you know, input and, and critiques and, and take them seriously. Uh, but again, it, everything has to be, you know, kind of grounded in, you know, the, the science. Yeah. And the CDC is known for that. I think you do an excellent, excellent job. And and it really is the gold standard for the medical community. And it needs to be clean of, you know, political agendas um, and, and just the science. Um, and I think that I think you, you've done that. And in, in, in all the publications, really, that the CDC um, ha, has put out. Um, I, I wrote in a comment. I don't know if you read all, what did you say, 5,000 comments that you received? 
6,500 comments. So one, I was one of the 65 comments and I probably, I, I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but I put in something about, I wanted to make sure that the, the issue of cannabis additive effects, like, cause the additive effects of opiates, um, not just for benzodiazepines and, and gabapentin and Benadryl, um, but also for, for marijuana and, and they were kept in there. So I was, I'm, I was happy to see that. Um, yeah. And I was wondering how much of that was controversial. Uh, did you get the marijuana industry of the pro-cannabis folks um, trying to get that out, keep it in, keep it out, how much? Yeah, I don't remember that being a huge um, focus. I think in part because, it, you know, it's not a top-line recommendation. It's more in the text. Um, but also that the evidence is still, you know, pretty preliminary. Um, you know, so I, I mean, earlier before we got online, we were we were talking. I mean, we, we've been doing a review on cannabis um, and other plant-based substances, so things like kratom and stuff like that, which some people think. And you're doing you that know, review for the federal be, government. Be, yeah, that's that's being done for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, um, and that's an ongoing review. So it's it's a living review, which means that we keep you know continuously search the literature and update um, as new studies come in. Um, and, um, you know, the, the evidence is pretty limited. We've actually tried to look at, you know, how marijuana cannabis use impacts opioid use, right? So, so if somebody is taking opioids, you know, does, you know, adding cannabis allow them to decrease the amount of opioids they're using? And, um, so far the studies just don't really report on that. So we don't have a lot of information on that. Or if anything, um, we, it, it happens the other way around, right? People who are on using chronic marijuana, um, they have a harder time managing pain. I think if you asked our trauma, yeah, they, they would also say they have a harder time, you know, in their rehab. They, they may. I mean, again, I think I feel like the evidence is pretty limited at this point and a little bit mixed. I mean, there's some studies that suggest that, you know, cannabis may have some beneficial effects on pain um, and whether they, you know, increase or decrease opioid use, I think is a little bit unclear at this point. Um, but cannabis is really complex, right? Because it's not a single substance, it's many substances. So, you know, it, you know, THC and CBD are probably the most prominent, but there's a lot of other things in there and then also potential contaminants and things like that and other compounds if you're looking at, you know, plant extracted um, substances and not like a pure, you know, synthetic product. So there's all sorts of complexities here. It really, in my opinion, you really, we, 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 you know, I, I think the perception is, of cannabis is that it's kind of this one thing, and it really isn't. That you know, CBD predominant products may be quite different from THC predominant products in their effects, um, and we need a lot more data to understand. You know, a lot of these things, and the, the you know, I I, I, see... I think there. Oh, oh, go ahead. No, so when you said we have very limited information, I think, and you correct me, but. You have limited information to show that it's good. I think we have tons of information and literature that emphasize the harms. And like the National Academy of Medicine that we both served on published a, a, a marijuana report on various benefits. 
completely ignoring the various harms. And I feel like I'm reliving history. Um, you know, years ago, I was seeing all these patients and we talked about in the emergency department who were there um, seeking opioids. And now every shift, every shift, I see marijuana poisonings, um, you know, cannabis hyperemesis, cannabis-induced psychosis. There's a whole, you know, I did a whole podcast on, on parents who've lost their children to cannabis-induced suicide, um, drug interactions, um, you know, skywriting number of geriatric patients coming in the emergency department that was recently published. I think we have plenty of research to show the harms. And yet whenever it seems to me, and please correct me, but when, you know, National Academy of Medicine, or I don't know if AHRQ is doing this too, they're looking at potential benefits, but you can't do that as a doctor. You can't recommend something based on the benefits without a balance of the harms. And I see that now with well, doctors because they were cut off from yeah. opioids, right? Okay, well, the government's looking at my opioid prescribing and they're telling right. their patients to just use marijuana without the science, without looking at the contraindications. And, and yeah, so I, I, I totally agree that when we look at um, drugs or other medical interventions, they need to be, ba you need to be balanced. And so you need to look at benefits as well as harms. Um, one of the problems with, opioids and cannabis is that um, at least in a you know typical randomized controlled trial, they're not designed to look at those types of harms, right? Because they're again, they're picking patients who are lower risk. They're not pick, they're not picking people who are gonna, you know, misuse or are at high risk of misusing or having is it, isn't that a problem disorder. It, it is a problem. Um, and the and and so if you look at the randomized controlled trials, they don't tell us anything about, you know, uh, cannabis use disorder risk because they're, first of all, they're too small to really give us any, you know, reliable information. Um, but certainly, you know, things like hyperemesis and things like that, the, the studies just aren't designed to, to, to look at those things. There are other sources to, to look at those types of, um, uh, of adverse effects. And, um, I mean, I agree that there is that that the harms of cannabis are probably understate, you know, underestimated, and people kind of ignore them. Um, but I think it's the same with like alcohol and a lot of other substances that are, you know, no, no, what's no, what's different it, with yeah. alcohol? And again, you could disagree, but I think what's different with alcohol is people know the risks. Right. There's dietary guidelines out there published by the National Institute of Alcohol, Alcohol Abuse on alcohol. We know that, you know, drinking too much, you shouldn't drive when you're drinking. And we know that it affects your liver. We, we know those things. The difference with marijuana is that people are told, oh, it's harmless. It's OK. It's natural. It'll help your anxiety. It'll help your pain better, better than those terrible opioids. And they're pushed on society. Um, you know, um, like opiates were pushed on the medical profession. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll just say on, on that I, I agree that the evidence to support, you know, using cannabis to treat pain is very limited, and in my opinion, it's not, you know, it's not there. Um, and I think we need a lot more research, and I think the research, you know, we would be well taught to you know, do the research. You know, one of the problems with cannabis is that the research has been very restricted because the federal government has, you know, traditionally at least Dr. not Chow, funded what, research. What's, in missing, what's yeah. missing in the research for harms? 
there's people, the people who say we're missing research either want to do more research or they want to show that it's good for you. I think I can quote, you know, more research than the surgeon that is out there on, um, on the harms than there was for the seed for the surgeon general when they said, you know, the warnings for tobacco, like, why are we not paying attention right. to the research that's already there? All right. No, so I'm not saying you should ignore those that research, but what I'm saying, for example, if you're saying, you know, should should somebody use cannabis instead of an opioid, we need a study that compares people that use cannabis and opioid, you know, and, and people that use opioids for pain, and actually says, you know, how many people are experiencing, you know, this side effect with cannabis versus, and so you need to be able to weigh those two things, and we can't, we don't really have the data to do that. But, so yeah, what's right. what's wrong yeah. what's wrong with my thinking as a physician to say today don't use cannabis for pain because one um, we don't know that it's better two we have other options for you and three I can give you ten side effects that I don't want you to develop because of that yeah I don't think there's anything wrong with that okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that I think that's a very valid um, perspective um, uh, you know, but there are people who, um, you know, there are people who would say, well, I know that the opioids have a much higher overdose risk, you know, than cannabis, and I'd rather have people on, you know, cannabis if you have to choose. And so that's another perspective. It's not but, one but that I necessarily agree with, but yeah. I find that really hard because, uh, you know, my the other people I've had on the podcast were into prevention science. And we talked about how the the National Academy of Medicine is working on this, you know, patient journey. If you look at the patient journey and you go you go downstream, you know, the downstream is someone overdosing on opioids. And if you go upstream, they started using opioids. And if you go upstream from that, you go, you see marijuana use. And if you go upstream from that, there's some whole... In someone's heart or anxiety, or whatever that's that's you know that's made them want to use drugs in the first place. So we you know to ignore that upstream effect and say, okay, well you know here just use marijuana instead of opioids. You just may have yeah. set up, especially kids. You may you may yeah. just committed them to a life of psychosis and anxiety, worse anxiety and other problems yeah. besides. An overdose. I would love, uh, I talked to the C the CDC also has a unit on cannabis. Wonderful, wonderful people who are doing great work, just like the, the unit that is working on and opioids. And maybe one day they'll take you and ask you to do a guideline for them on uh, uh, on on what's, what's, what physicians need to know and patients need to do on cannabis. I feel like I'm reliving history because I actually wrote such a guideline for the medical community. It's published by Isaac, the International Academy on Science and Impact in Cannabis. I'd love to share it with you, get your input. Um, not, not judgmental, not do it, not like what I said, don't mm -hmm. use it. Saying like your patients are using it. Just like you said, it's ubiquitous in Oregon. It's ubiquitous ubiquitous in California, but these are the things that you should know. Your patients are using this. These are the things that you should know. And I'll, and it's about making informed risk-benefit decisions. Um, and so who knows, oh, yeah. maybe your work now with yeah. AHRQ and your experience with CDC opioid guidelines would lead you to the next step. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with everything you said. And I think that... Um, as I said, I, I think it's too early to to um, to know that cannabis is a safer alternative or what the effects are really. I mean, it's it's very preliminary. 
Um, and um, I, I, I actually, one, one point you made about, you know, cannabis use in kids, I mean, it's, in Oregon, that's, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's very common in middle school and high school. And it's very concerning because we know that, you, you know, early use of these substances can have, you know, effects on brain development and, you know, risk for, you know, substance use in the future. So, so I, I think that these are all totally legitimate concerns. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I feel that this is, again, I, 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 the, um, you know, there is evidence out there. It's hard to, um, it's not the same type of evidence, you know, that, that usually we can, um, uh, you know, make strong conclusions from, at least when we're trying to compare different, you know, treatment strategies. And that's why we need better studies. And, and again, the federal government has not traditionally funded a lot of research in this area because of, you know, um, regulations and prohibitions about cannabis research, but um, that does seem to be changing, and, and I think we will have more information. And, and if it has therapeutic value, then it needs to be regulated by the FDA, like opioids are, or you know, or aspirin and non-steroidals, and not not you know, um, not what's happening um, right now. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to say thank you to Justin for great questions and your um, ability as an emergency department pharmacist for elevating the care that we provide in the emergency department. And thank you, Dr. Roger Chow, um, for the CDC guidelines, um, elevating the work we all do across the nation as as providers um, in being safer in managing pain and using opioids and providing the gold standard in a very tough political environment by sticking to the science. And I really want to thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to chat. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, Doctors Educating on the Harms of Marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.